Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast for adults. You are listening to a weekly publication, produced every Friday morning. The Kinky Cast is heard in over 150 countries. This is our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Today, we present episode 290, Scarlett Ross, jumping off the relationship escalator. Don't forget to stop by our webpage for information about this show and others. KinkyCast.com. Here's your host, Woody. Thanks, Max, and welcome to another edition of the Kinky Cast. On the line with me from lovely Atlanta is Scarlett Ross. Hi there, Woody. How are you doing? I am so good. And <laughs> you have been on the show before. You are all about Polly. I, I mean, you got it going on there. <laughs> Definitely. I, I've seen a number of your classes at uh, Frolicon and other places, and it's common sense the way you teach it. it. It's it just when you say it, it makes sense to me. Wonderful. Yeah, it's it's one of those pieces where I always speak of what I know, and since the only thing I'm sure about is what I've experienced, uh, I speak from that, and that's most often down to earth. Laundry and, uh, you know, how to get the kids to bed on time so you can have a date night. <laughs> Funny how that works, huh? Right. <laughs> yeah. So the topic tonight, it's it's kind of a long one, but let's see if we can knock it down into size. Jumping off the relationship escalator, which mm-hmm. is interesting. In the monogamy world, we've all hopped on an escalator and, and got off and had a relationship and then got back on when it failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's one topic. And the other one is holdover of ideas from the monogamous culture. And, you know, we were all raised with that. And so that's what we're taught from early age. Right. You know, we, we're going to grow up, uh, get married, and live happily ever after. We have this this predetermined way that relationships go, that they have to have a direction, that longevity is the hallmark of a successful relationship. But if I'm designing relationships based on where we are as individuals and then where we are as uh, the people in the relationship, that may not be forever. And certainly if I'm living till I'm 96, I might change a little bit between here and there. So you don't use cookie cutters for relationships? Um, no, no, not so much. I'm sort of a free form bread kind of girl. Sometimes it's plain. Sometimes we add some, some savory, sometimes some sweet, a lot of creativity and the idea of, okay, we're going to date. We're going to share a space. We're going to get married, have children, all of those paradigms that we've been soaking in literally every form of media gives you that message. It leaves lots of people out, people who are non-binary, people who are not going to have children, people who don't want to engage in legal marriage or uh, maybe cohabitate. There are people who simply don't need to live in the same space as other people. Um, to have a successful relationship. And so for me, I started saying, well, wait a minute, we have all these bits and pieces left over from monogamy. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. How can we look at that and create a new way of measuring relationships, talking about relationships that isn't defined solely by a monogamous structure? 
Well, that is a, a rather <laughs> deep subject. <laughs> I like it that way. I like it that way. Give me something meaty. You've always done like the, the 202 classes and, and it's like, okay, well, you know what Polly is now? Here's how it's going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> Lay it out. Lay it out for you. Um, and part of it is, you know, I, I got a new girlfriend a, a couple of years ago and I immediately started thinking about, oh, well, what does this mean? And in looking at it, people were like, oh, well, y'all are cute. How long have you been together? And I kind of got frustrated at that question because how long we've been together doesn't say anything. Well, that's the measurement <laughs> of success, don't you know? Oh, yes, of course. And and people will just pull out their little year years of rulers and tell me whether or not my relationship is a success. Um, and I guess by traditional measures, I do have quote unquote successful relationships. 20, eh, 24 years, 17 years, something like that for several of my relationships. If but you're using a measuring tape, yes. If you're using a measuring tape, I prefer yardsticks myself because I like that kind of relationship, but I've had really meaningful connections to people that have lasted, you know, a couple of months where we were in a particular space in our lives that that connection was very intense and very fulfilling. But then we drifted apart and there was no animosity. So it's not like it failed, but I wanted to see those relationships as successful. You take a, a relationship that's full of uh, new relationship energy, NRE, you then throw a couple doses of passion, a little bit of lust, mm -hmm. and a mixture mm -hmm. of love in there, mix it up, and you have rocket fuel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that rocket takes off, and I mean, it is spectacular for right. a period of time. Mm -hmm. And then it cools off a bit just because of life. Well, we can't all burn at the the pace of the sun. <laughs> and I look at it and I wanted my relationship with my new partner, which felt really connected and really intense. And I don't make those often. So I knew it was going to be one of those that was life-changing for me. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to keep this one for a while. I'm going to make life plans around this person. That's successful to me. Well, those are... Um... <laughs> Life plans, that's pretty important stuff, you know? That's you know, what people they, get married about. Right. If they move out of state, am I going to go with them? Um, that's kind of my marker of um, how intense is this relationship for me? How helpful, how, how much um, am I going to invest my life in this? Boy, there's a lot to be said about that, isn't there? <laughs> well, you know, there by, by the time you get to your age in life, you have a career. You mm -hmm. have a house, a place, you have roots. Mm -hmm. Somebody new comes along and sweeps you off your feet. Then what? Then what? And how do I, how do I even look at that and, you know, pass that NRE that you're talking about? How do I take that into account? Because it's kind of, that's a really good high. Those first few months. Oh, yeah. Really, those drugs are good in the brain. And you piss <laughs> off everybody around you. Absolutely. And and I look at my other relationships, you know, a relationship of three or four months where everything is really amazing. And then I have one for 22 years. And am I comparing them? Are they supposed to feel the same at that point? Okay. Now in Polly, we don't compare. 
I do. I try not to, but there's this part of my brain that says, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right if I'm settled and, you know, we sit on the couch and watch TV series with one partner? Or am I supposed to be taking all my partners out on weekend long dates? Which one's the right way to have this relationship? Ooh, now you're down to right and wrong in Paula. That's a, <laughs> there's a deep subject right there. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that I'm doing it right and wrong at all moments. Because maybe one partner doesn't want to share space. Maybe one partner doesn't want to go out to concerts, for instance. Is going out to concerts going to be a good way to have that relationship with them? No. But then what's the relationship with them like? And that's where I started differentiating between what society has told me I needed, because they know better than I do, apparently, and then what my partners and I started coming to when we actually sat down and said, well, wait a minute, what do we want right now? And maybe that's different, because it's way different now that I have a child who's out of the house than it was, say, when my child was three and I spent 24 hours a day with my three-year-old. You're starting to ask the question, is what makes you happy at this point in your life? Yes. And it changes it, <laughs> from when your child was three to when your child is out of the house and an, an adult. <laughs> your whole criteria is different. Right. The partner you had back then versus the partner you have now may be completely different type of people. And unfortunately, we get to the point where we, we have to have the relationship that lasts forever, which means we try and take this partner who's already changing along with us, hopefully we're all growing, and shove them into the same relationship you had 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. That'll and work. yeah, that's going to work. Enough lube and everything works. Mm -hmm. But you can't make that person fit that structure. We're not taught how to look at relationships and say, it needs to change. We need to adapt. Or sometimes successful relationships change into friendships or distance or not being there. And letting go of relationships is definitively bad. Talking about moral judgment um, but it's also, we don't have skills for it. Let's talk about skills for a second. Okay. We start our skills from the day we're born. Our, pa mm -hmm. our parents start handing them out. And then society kicks in and hands out a bunch that are maybe similar to your parents, maybe not. And you're growing up and you go independent. And then your society says, I have to pick a mate. And, uh, and so you pick that perfect person for you, and, and that can be in any part of the spectrum. And then you're going to live happily ever after the rest of your life. Remember, you're, you're 18 at this point. Right. And so you have all the, all the tools to choose the perfect mate. I, I know. I thought I did. I'm pretty sure I didn't have all the tools to pick, pick a good car, much less a good mate. Um, <laughs> I didn't know who I was right. at 18. Right, exactly. And I, I wanted to think that my values were so different than my parents' values. 
Um, you know, I was a, a hippie child of the, the late 70s, early 80s, and I was, I was a rebel without a cause there for a little while until I bought a house and had a kid and got married and in the correct order, correct order, the big air quotes on that one. And I did it anyway. I did all those things and I don't think I had the ideas fully formed as to what it took to maintain a relationship. I didn't have that skill. I had the skill of how to date, how to go get dressed, how to seek all these things. But once I had the relationship, nobody told me how to keep it. Very frustrating. <laughs> so you had the skills to date one at a yeah. time, multiple yes. at a time. No, always one at a time. Ah, something a, a carry along from our cultural society. Yes. And that, you know, you always looked at potential dates as potential marriage. You couldn't just date in my world for fun. They were always, you know, would I take them home to mom? So you're using your yardstick for other purposes now, measuring them up. Mm -hmm. Measuring other people by standards I was given for a life that I didn't necessarily want. And in there, I, I sort of became dissatisfied. Nothing really fit. They didn't fit me. Boy, that, that's, that's a powerful <laughs> statement, isn't it? When you go back and recognize it. Yeah. And a little terrifying because then I had to start with the question of, well, right, if you're going to throw out all of the measurements, what is it you want? What do you think will make you happy? And then I had an existential breakdown because I did, had no idea. <laughs> and then I started guessing. I'm like, mm, that's why I came up with, what do I want for this time period or with this person? You know, with this person, I want this kind of silly comforting. Um, what do I bring to the relationship instead of what are they giving me? Centering my power back on me and saying, what am I bringing? And what am I seeking? So a lot of challenges there to getting rid of all of these structures and all of these measurements that people had imposed on me. But if I get rid of them, then I have to have to do some really hard work. <laughs> and you know, what's interesting about that is you say yourself with person A, yourself with person B, yourself with person C, and it's not yourself. It's a copy of yourself that's been modified by that person. Definitely impacted by that person. Yeah. And, and so I've decided, you know, uh, you make your list of, of the perfect relationship. Well, they don't all fit with the different people in my life. Mm -hmm. And I've then also reprioritized things that used to be priority ones are, are now priority tens mm -hmm. with a particular person and they're higher on the list with someone else. We have different viewpoints with different partners. I think that's very true, especially as we move through the lens of time, um, the lens of life. Um, I'm, you know, at certain points you're building, at certain points you're reevaluating. You know, I'm changing what I'm doing in my world. And so I need and want support for that, but I also want to be challenged a little bit. 
if you had challenged me when I had a three-year-old, I would have bitten your head off. <laughs> Don't challenge how I'm raising my child. Mm -hmm. um, but challenging me as a person now is easier. Um, it's something I seek out because I need that growth. So my needs have changed. So back when we started, we talked about the relationship escalator. Let's mm -hmm. talk about that for a second. So the relationship escalator is a, is a descriptive term that we've come to use. And that is that we start our relationships with other people and they are headed in one direction. They are always headed toward longevity. We start dating. Maybe then we make things Facebook official right? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> yes. we, uh, we, we are in a relationship on Facebook and then uh, there's the uh, requisite U-Haul to moving in together. Sometimes that accompanies an engagement, sometimes not. Um, but soon thereafter, people start asking for that next step. Are you going to get engaged? When are you going to get married? And as soon as those questions start to be asked, they're looking to the next step on this escalator. Are you going to get married and buy a house? Are you going to have a child? Frequently at your wedding, people will ask you about the child that you have yet to have um, because there's always this next step. There's always this next step. So you're sort of driven in a direction. It feels a little relentless to me, like you can't enjoy where you are. Like I enjoy new relationship energy. That's fun to me. My most recent relationship, we're about four years in, and I'm still riding that new relationship energy because <laughs> it's fun to me. It's a great high to the uh, the people involved. You know, just have to be careful about the people that are attached around your constellation. Right. Where they remind you that you have NRE. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that they, they have maybe reached the top of the escalator and stopped. Um, and that's one of the dangers of that escalator is once you've gotten the home and the child, then what? How do you, you just stop working on that relationship? So the people that ask you if you're going to be pregnant at your wedding, uh, <laughs> do they have the next step? So how long is it going to take to pay off your college loans? Yeah. You know? <laughs> what yeah. is the next step? <laughs> pay off your college loans. I think it's, um, you know, then it's, it at least for me as a woman, it changed into milestones for my child instead of me. Uh -huh. And I watched that of, oh, how is your child speaking? Are they walking? Where are they in school? Those milestones were the ones that people paid attention to. And me as a person, I quit having them. And people quit asking about them, especially because I didn't have work. Hmm. So then it's milestones like, have you gotten a promotion? Have you increased your income? These are all like outside measures of how we're doing in life. Nobody asked me if I was happy. Happiness isn't a question on the curve there. Yeah, but it should be. We really should have people who are living in relationships, I don't know, call me crazy, that smile and enjoy their partners, that enjoy their choices that look at their choices and say, yeah, that, that marriage, that house, that shared space, those are things I want and I've enjoyed and I love. 
Um, I think it makes a difference in how we walk through the world when those choices are intentional and happy ones. A very true statement, and they're very personal. Your personal happiness is not necessarily derived as a couple or a poly family. It is how you see it Mm -hmm. personally. And I think we think happy with this big giant, um, sometimes almost over-exaggerated smile on our face. For me, happiness is, you know, being just calm with my family, being having that feeling of security. I know that these people love me. I know that they're going to turn on the captions so I can read what's happening and not struggle to listen. I also know they're going to show up at 2 a.m. if I get sick. So those are the things that create space for me to be happy rather than making me happy. Whether they're friends, family, poly family, whatever, the, the friends you count on one hand, Uh, Those are the people that would drive halfway across the country to pick you up if they needed Mm -hmm. to, if you needed them to. Right. Something like that is so valuable. Incredibly valuable. And part of what I discovered when I started looking at this, you know, escalator and all the models from monogamy that had carried over for me um, without me noticing that I was carrying this backpack of expectations was that not only was I disappointed with what I expected, but I was surprised by what I didn't expect. And that is these intentional families that we create with people who are so rich and so giving. And my relationships with those people were not being honored and respected in the way that people talked about, oh, that's just your friend, or, oh, this is a phase, it will pass. Um, or, oh, it's just about sex. And so my poly life wasn't getting the respect that I thought it deserved because these are some really awesome people. <laughs> Dismissal by, by people, that is so tough. We're doing something that is outside the norms of society. We're trying to identify what the rules are because there are no rules. And we're trying to figure out what's right. And then we're getting monogamous traditional community judgment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was easier when the judgment was from the outside because I could, I could defend it. Um, But then when I did it to myself, I didn't realize how ingrained it was, how much I had all these little steps in my head. Because literally somebody at a polyamorous convention would be, they would come up and say, hi, I wanted to introduce you to one of my partners. I'd say, hi, how are you? And my question was, how long have you been together? Ooh, you, you did it. <laughs> I did it. I, I did it to myself. I did it to them. I brought in this little sneaky expectation of time equals worth. Mm. But if I only get to see my partner who lives across the country maybe three times a year, does that reduce their worth? You can't let it. And you can't let it. But I had to fight both external and internal expectations on that level to be able to say, you know what? No. I, this is my partner. I define how that works for me. And they are real and they are worthwhile. But then I had to figure out why. <laughs> what was it that made it worthwhile to me? 
And that was that happiness value, that connection value. So one of the questions that I started asking was, what connects you to your partner? What gives that partner purpose or, or a special spot in your life? And that's less about time. It's less about the cultural expectations of relationships and more about what I value in relationships. But not everybody values the same things. How do you deal with being open about your poly family to what I would call vanillas? Vanillas. <laughs> in, in the vanilla world, I kept it pretty quiet until my son was out of high school because I didn't want my choices to reflect on him. It's a pretty high price for a teenager to have to pay to be that oddball. <laughs> um, <laughs> fortunately for me, I pass. Not everybody has that um, skill or that life where they can pass. I, I appear to be a heterosexual soccer mom from the suburbs of Atlanta. And I let that happen. But more and more, I've gotten to the point where last night I was chatting with a band parent and came out as, as polyamorous, and I just stated it. I said, because I'm polyamorous, I went to the doctor and asked for my yearly testing or my quarterly testing. But I don't tell them unless it's important to me in that relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. I did, I had a great explanation. Someone said the other day, well, you know, when, when did you tell your kids you were poly? And somebody said, well, Nobody asks heter heterosexual monogamous couples, when did you tell your child you were monogamous? Oh, interesting. I know. And it sort of flipped the script on me. And I said, well, we don't because it's the assumption. It's the privilege there. And I have the ability, because I can't get fired from my job, I work for myself, to be more out. And that's what I've started doing is being more visible as much as possible. I have great family, but now my neighbors have started noticing because I have bumper stickers on my car. Okay. Your neighbors started noticing how, what did they say? <laughs> this is a great story, Woody. <laughs> okay. I, I, I want to hear this one. I am doing yard work. Um, my polycule came over to help me uh, get my yard into shape because I'm one of those feast or famine kind of gardeners. And this guy walks up in my yard and says, um, so hi. I said, hi. He said, uh, we're your neighbors and just wanted to pop in and say hi because we uh, noticed your bumper stickers and uh, we really liked them. And I said, oh, being a little cagey because I have several stickers, I said, which one interested you? <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, the, uh, the one with the heart over there. And I said, oh, really? And then we we sort of giggled and, you know, we'd broken the ice at that point. I said, there are, you know, several conventions in town. And we talked about ones that were coming up. And I saw them at one of the conventions and they came up and said, hi. I still don't know these people very well, but it was kind of interesting that they picked out that bumper sticker, that that was my calling card for somebody to say, hey, I now wear jewelry all the time that has the poly heart on it. 
and I have things on my bags that are all identifying me as polyamorous. And those that know what it is, know what it is. Know what it is. And to anyone else, it's just a heart. Yeah. <laughs> anyone else, it's just a really pretty heart. And I don't drop my voice when I'm in public. That was something I did because you, you don't talk about sex and polyamorous is about sex. And I realized I was doing that. And I'm like, wait a minute, if it's not about sex, why am I ashamed? I shouldn't be ashamed anyway. What in the heck is going well, on? You know, it's like asking your neighbor, how was sex last night? Right. <laughs> you know, your monogamous neighbor, you know, how in the hell can they look at us and go, well, they're, they're poly because of the sex. I, because they don't understand any of it, I guess. I mean, because that's part of how they define the difference. The difference for them is that relationships, as I understand it, are serious when you're having sex with somebody. And ah. serious puts you on that escalator. Okay, so if you're just casually dating and there's no sex yet, then there's you know no value to the relationship. Yes. Okay. I've, I've heard a lot of people describe it that way, as you're just dating around. Uh, casual dating, yes. Casual dating, yes. I was not very good at casual dating as, you know, I just date them all at once and just keep them forever. Yeah, it works for me. You know. <laughs> it works for me. Um, but it, it's that definition of relationship equals sex or serious relationship equals sex. And it puts you on that path, which is going to end with a house and 2.5 children. And if we don't have that definition, then what are we doing? Is it even a relationship? I've had people ask me that. It's amazing the balls people have sometimes. <laughs> they just want to be in my business so badly. Because you're a freak. <laughs> I am. I am so freaky. You come in my bedroom and there's a cat on either side of me snoring and my son's doing dishes. Like it's, it's traditional, normal life. Whatever the hell normal is. Uh, yeah, it's my normal. Well, and that's it. <laughs> you have created a normal in your house. Which mm -hmm. is when the sun is shining and <laughs> your son's doing dishes and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and the cats are snoring. That is your definition, but it's mm -hmm. sure not the definition of somebody down the street. Right. Because they have a grumpy face on and they hate their life. They hate their job. They hate their wife. I, I know people that talk about getting a divorce for years. If I had to go through life like that, it's not worth living. It's not. But then I value my happiness. You value being honest, I think, with the people in your world. If it's not working for you, change it. Mm -hmm. But if there's no paradigm for changing it, change it to what? To single? Like those are the two options. And just like many of the things in our society where we are not looking at it as either or anymore. So relationships can be on a on a spectrum gender diversity levels of accessibility for people with disabilities all these things are on a spectrum and i think it allows more of us to fit in when we look at it that way but when you're in a a relationship that you don't like and the only way out is divorce and that's social suicide your choices are pretty bleak and i don't know that that I would live that way anymore. I don't think I could. I've been, I've been here too long. <laughs> I drank the water. I got some on me. 
And you know what happiness is. You've defined it and it makes you smile. And I think for now, I have an idea of where that happiness lies, but it's more of an action than a place. So I'm sort of wandering around and happy where I used to be on an escalator headed towards one direction and these things were going to make me happy. Being married, having a baby, um, having a career, those things, those pieces of life were what were supposed to make me happy. And they didn't because I wasn't happy for myself. I was happy for these other pieces. But if I look at how polyamorous living has taught me to ask questions about what is it I want out of this relationship? What is it I want out of the next job? I can come up with answers that allow for me to maybe come back to them. I want to be a writer. Writing makes me happy. Well, if I've got writer's block, am I doomed to be unhappy? Well, no. Not if I know that taking a break and working on other projects also can give me that inner joy. But if I know that having a relationship or not are the only two options, that feels really pressurized for me. And I like a little bit more freedom than that. So I can have relationships that are that two month span or the 24 years, whatever suits us. I've had relationships that were five or six years and then we sort of said, no, I'm pretty good. You want to date other people? This is not stirring me right now. And we stopped. No hardship, no hatred, but we had a meaningful relationship. And it was meaningful as you and the person in the relationship defined it. Mm-hmm. Not by societal standards. Society has, they don't have a dog in this fight. So. <laughs> but they have an influence on us. You turn on the TV, you listen to the radio, you pick up a newspaper, whatever it is, society is conditioning you. Mm-hmm. I have lived this way for a quarter of a century. And literally yesterday, I'm still making this, this expectation of myself, of my partners. And I don't catch it all the time. But the more I do, the more I get to make choices that are intentional. And maybe I still choose to have my partners live with me because that's what I prefer. But I make that choice because it literally is what helps me be happy not because it's necessary. At this stage of your life, that is what makes things right. Mm-hmm. Now think about the next stage of your life when you, when you get older. I, I've got over a decade on you. And my poly family is very caretaking oriented. So we check on each other. We make sure that, you know, everything's going okay. And, uh, you know, I, I've done too many hospital visits here recently. Mm-hmm. But that's what my family is. Mm -hmm. I know that if I am in some kind of illness, what have you, that they will be there because they're my family, Mm -hmm. my chosen family. That chosen family that's doing all this hard work, that's standing up in those difficult times and and standing with you, they, they need that recognition for me, partially because if I can't speak for myself, I need them to speak for me. Absolutely. I've had it, you know, that long look in the future of, I already walk with a cane. (laughs) These three-story houses are not going to be in my future for long. I'm pretty sure that we just need to buy 
a house with multiple big rooms and multiple meeting spaces and run our own little growing older in poly community. We're turning Mormon. <laughs> yeah. In Salt Lake City, they have houses built like that. Exactly what you described. Yeah. And, and they're harder to find in the South, but you can find them. Absolutely. Multiple master bedrooms. That is the way. Master on the main is what I keep looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a challenge because society has dictated what houses look like. And who can speak for you. You know, if you're looking for, I'm one of the people that, if you're looking for a blood relation for me, you're not going to find one. Which means my bio family doesn't exist. It is my chosen family. So I've had to go through that effort of no really people. Legally, you have to listen to these crazy folks that surround me. They know that I do not want to be put in a box. They know that I need to have you know not to put me in a small room or whatever it is. They know how to take care of me. And I look at that and I, I have to make those calls ahead of time. So there's a lot of thinking about things. There's a lot of what ifs. Unfortunately, those sorts of decision makings, when you're in the hospital and here comes a person that is, quote, not part of your family. Mm -hmm. I have stormed into a critical care unit saying, I'm her brother. Let me in there, mm -hmm. you know, w without any question, because I take on the stance of I need to be in there. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> they are my chosen family and I am going to do what it takes to be with them. And I think those are sort of the defining moments. I learned that I would fight for my poly family when a third partner moved in. Because I had a child, if family and children services showed up, then I would have to explain it. And I knew then that I was willing to answer questions, that I was willing to fight that fight. And, you know, I, I frequently am the person that gets called at 2 a.m. For the, for the ER visits. And I just finally used all of my skills and said, nope, we're going to make this easier. And we had a lawyer who drew up our documents, which was helpful. But then all of our allergies and who's taking what medications, those are all in a document online on a shared server that everybody can access. It makes that part of it easier. I can't make the pain of a loved one being in the hospital easier, but I can prevent them from giving the wrong medication. I can have the contact information to call the people you want contacted. I can handle those pieces. And the more family I have, the longer those call lists get, um, and the more complex the spreadsheet gets. But I also know that that gives me a way of taking care of these people, caretaking for my, my polycules. That's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. At this point, as we get older, this becomes more of a in-focus spotlight. Mm -hmm. Past had other things, raising a family. Mm -hmm. Now it's taking care of each other. And then the future being for me, because I don't have the dangers, for me, the next few steps in, involve being a warrior for myself and my family, for this community where I can be visible and sort of cut down some of the weeds <laughs> that get in the way between us and just being able to go and take care of people without having to explain why this person's important to me. It's really none of your business. How they are. true. <laughs> so let me ask you this tough question. Mm. What does it take to get 
polyfamily rights recognized by the federal government? Ooh. Well, the first question is, do we want them? <laughs> because that is a fair question. You know, if the federal government wants us to uh, be acknowledged, then they get a say in how we do it. I'm not really sure that I trust them in my relationships. Some days I'm not sure I trust me in my relationships. So that's not like just the government that has, I have an issue with that one. Um, but seriously looking at it, it is possible to go ahead and do in the form of a business contract between multiple parties the things that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. You can get legal protection. You can't get medical protection, but you can do that with a medical power of attorney and DNR, last rights and wishes. Living will. Yeah, w living will. Thank you. That was the term. So you can, you can put all those pieces of paper in place. I think to some degree, we're going to end up writing on the tail of LGBT rights, just like the rights of many people who have been disenfranchised. They ride on the people right before them. Women getting the vote, people of color getting the vote. Uh, none of those things have come easy and they've taken time. But on the same token, all those things that you've just laid out as landmarks are now being challenged and some are to being taken away. Mm -hmm. And I think looking at that disheartens me, but it also means that if I can step forward, maybe we're not going to ride the coattails, as has historically been true, because distance and communication have limited our ability to mobilize as a community. We have a bigger voice because we're connected by the internet, electrons flying all around. Then maybe I step forward and I'm shoulder to shoulder with other people who need these same rights, and we share this need and we speak with a, a louder voice. Maybe that's what needs to happen. I don't know. It becomes rather personal to polyamorous around mm -hmm. in how they want to be out, all those sorts of things. I have some partners that are very open to their family on who I am and others that it is a monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. it, sometimes it's hard to walk the line. It is. And it, especially when you have, when you have them all together for Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have um, groups that do not get together because the kids will talk. Yes, I can see that. I can see that. And it's, it's that challenge of where's the privacy because we're afraid. Is it privacy because we're just choosing to be inward looking? But also for me, it's about safety. That's, that was the biggest reason why I chose to be closeted for a long time. Um, and do I feel safe? Well, I got a fair amount of privilege going on as a passing white girl. I'm middle-aged. I'm not really threatening. I got a kid. I fit your paradigm mostly, you being the outside world, not you, Woody. I, I know you're different. I think for me, it comes down to human rights. And proving that I'm a human pisses me off because I shouldn't have to. So right on that. <laughs> I should not have to justify the fact that I exist and I love and I do good in the world to the best of my ability. And that's what you get. I don't have to use your measures of successful relationship or your measures of a successful job as a stay-at-home mom. I fought that perception of worth and value. 
because I wasn't worth anything. I didn't have a job. You know, is my relationship of three years as worthy as the legal marriage to my husband of 24? The marriage, you, you signed a paper and it, it's all stamped by somebody. I did. I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Which that, is then a higher level than anything you could do. <laughs> right. But I, ha- I have a friend of mine who regrets getting married because not everybody can. Very true. Not all of my partners can be, even if I have an egalitarian system of polycule, they can't actually be that way legally if I have already legally married someone, an individual, unless I'm divorced and none of us are married. So right now, that would be the the one way to put everybody on the same footing. And then there's one other factor, Mm. medical insurance. (laughs) Marrying for medical. Yeah. And it happens. It happens an awful lot. One of the polycules I know, it was a V, and the legal marriage uh, was divorced and married to the other person solely for insurance hmm. because insurance was so exorbitant that paying for a divorce was cheaper. Wow. It blows my mind that we're tying my health to my marriage. So if I get divorced, what do I do? If I don't work for other people, I have to go out and find insurance that is pretty expensive, quite frankly, and fairly useless in my experience. Oh, yeah. Well, the deductible is $5,000, so don't worry about it. Right, right. You know, that awful person who is seeking to help my community, so that's where I spend my time and energy, which is a choice I make. The consequence of that choice is that I don't have tons of money, but I do still make that choice. I look at how it damages people down the road, and it just, again, it pisses me off. But you can live with your choices and sleep well. Most of them. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them I look back and go, oh, that was, I should not have picked that fight. Um, Well, you know, if we're going to do a retrospective here, you know, that that, mm, not good. That's that's a whole different show, Woody. I'm sorry. (laughs) The, The choices I've made in my life to this point. Um. I have to give prior me some credit and and pat her on her little head because I didn't know then. I didn't know any better for some of them. So I made the best I could with what I had. You know, I've offended people and been the evil bad guy in their stories and they weren't making it up because I did bad things and I didn't know it. And I changed over time. But I don't regret what I've done in that I'm here now. And I really like here. Gee, I never saw you as a bad guy. <laughs> oh, oh yes. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I have a I have a little mask that goes with it. It's ah, it's very cute. <laughs> all right. Well, it is so great to talk to you again. Uh, last time I saw you was at Frolicon, and I said, you know, we got to do this thing. Yeah. And we've uh, managed to wait till the middle of the year. So great to hear from you again. Let's dive into another angle of this later in the year because you have such great uh, insight on this. Thank you, Woody. Thanks so much. It's what I sit around and dream of all day. (laughs) (laughs) I live it. I live it all day long, but I appreciate your insight and and definitely for you being somebody who is, you know, 10 years older than me, where I can see where I'm going. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) I was going to say, lead me in the right direction there. (laughs) Yeah, good luck. Uh, Okay. (laughs) We'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks a lot, Woody. You have a good one. You have been listening to episode 290 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the Kinky Cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. Join us next week when we present Mark Warner's Anafield House. Anafield House.